Good morning, everybody. I'm going to read this week's scripture readings and then get into my sermon. The Old Testament lesson today comes from 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 through 44. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in the sack. And Elisha said, Give it to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our psalm today is Psalm 146. I'm just going to read the whole thing. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in the son of a man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets his prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The New Testament lesson is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 through 23. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool for God. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, it is written, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ's, and Christ is God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel lesson this morning is Mark chapter 6. He went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? Where is the, what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and, jo and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, 
no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And in any place, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of this, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's, that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent out and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's, Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. <clears throat> but when an opportunity came on Herod, but an opportunity came on Herod on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of this, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And yet he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And so they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of food and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the, the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. 
And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the water. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is the Gospel of the Lord. We're continuing in our series on Mark with chapter 6, and this chapter is really the story of two feasts. One is a feast of self-focused appetites and bent desires, and the other is a feast of grace from a good and living God. Let's start back at the beginning, though. At the beginning of Mark 6, Jesus is in his hometown among his own people, among his family, and he is rejected. Because they're looking at him, and he's teaching with authority, and he's healing, and he's acting like this wise rabbi, maybe even a prophet. But they're looking at him, and they're saying, who, who is this guy? I mean, this is, this is Mary's kid. He's, he's the guy from down the street. He's just the local builder. Um, side note, there's actually really good evidence that Jesus was actually a stonemason and not a carpenter, because the stone imagery and the rock imagery that Jesus, is, Jesus uses himself throughout the Gospels is pretty strong. But anyway, the, the word for carpenter, the word that's translated as carpenter, is, uh, it just means builder. And so they're saying, this guy's just the local builder. Who's he to tell us all this stuff? And so in his hometown, Jesus was rejected. And Jesus turned to them and he said, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and even in his own household. And yet, and yet, even while he is being rejected, among his own, among those who should know him best and love him best, even still, he went out among the villages teaching. Jesus had brought healing. He had brought truth. He had brought the kingdom of God in the flesh to them, and he was rejected. And so what does he do with rejection? He still has a mission to fulfill. He still has people to teach. And so even in the midst of rejection, he still goes out among these local villages teaching and healing. He knew he was being rejected, and he went out anyway. And then he sends his followers out. After seeing the rejection that he's getting, he sends his followers out. Listen to his instructions to the apostles. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Basically, that means when you go into a town, the first house that you go in, stay there. Don't go bopping around from house to house trying to find a better deal or nicer lodgings or better food. And then verse 11. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out. The disciples went out and they, they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil those who were sick and they healed them. Jesus knew that this was going to happen to them because it happened to him. They, he knew that they were going to get rejected because he, he, he put a plan in place. What happens if you're rejected? If they won't hear you and won't receive your testimony, shake off the dust that is on your feet and leave. He knew it was going to happen, and yet he still sent them out. Why? Because 
throughout history, the gospel has almost always spread through suffering. And much of the world is going to reject it, no matter how smart we are or how relevant we are, no matter how slick our message is, much of the world is still going to reject it. But Christ sends us out anyway because he knows that he is going to provide for us what we need. Jesus sends them out. He gives them instructions for what happens if they are rejected in the same way that he was rejected. Shake the dust off your feet and move on. Because there's a lot of people who will hear this message and will repent and believe and be welcomed into the kingdom, but there are a lot who won't. He knew they would be rejected, and he sent them out anyway. And then we come to a, a really stark passage. This is a picture of what the full rejection of the gospel looks like, and we see it in grisly detail. The final Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, the one who mirrored the words of Isaiah, uh, the one who was a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, that guy, John the Baptist, we see an extended and grim picture of his death for the sake of the gospel. Now, the weird thing is we're in the middle of Mark 6 when we get this description of what happened to John the Baptist. But the interesting thing, this part of the chapter, it actually takes place back around the events of Mark 1 or Mark 2. In Mark 1, Jesus had been driven out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit and tested by Satan for 40 days, right? Right after he starts his earthly ministry. And it says in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So John was arrested way back in, in Mark 1. There are certain things, and I want to point this out because this is a way that, um, that atheists and nonbelievers will challenge the, the veracity of the Bible. There are certain things that will trip you up if you take the, the norms of our day and try to read them back into the norms of the day of the Bible. The convention today is that if you're telling, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're telling someone's biography, you tell it in chronological order, which to me makes sense, but at that time, it was not at all uncommon to jump backward and forward in time when telling someone's biography in order to make a bigger thematic point. And Trust me, this is not an excuse to try and make the Bible palatable to a modern audience. This is just, there's evidence in pagan biographies and Roman biographies of, of this exact thing. This was just an understood way of, of telling someone's story. It doesn't take away from the truth of this at all. So Mark is not lying here when he moves this story about John the Baptist's beheading to a later point than it actually happens because he's structuring it in a way to make a point. He's basically telling this in flashback. And so here's where we are. In the narrative of the story, Jesus is rejected. He sends out his disciples, who he knows might also face rejection. And now Mark is basically saying, here, look here. This is what a picture of the rejection of God's messengers look like. Verse 14 of Mark 6. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Herod heard about Jesus, <clears throat> and this is not good. Remember the idea of the messianic secret? Over and over again, when Jesus heals people or casts out demons, he gives them instructions to not tell anyone who did this. And these are instructions that we see people throughout the gospel immediately ignoring. He tells people, tell no one who did this to you. And they can't wait to run out and tell everybody in town about this Jesus. 
We've been concerned that the people who Jesus told to shut up about who he was have in fact not been shutting up, but in fact been talking very loudly. So loudly, in fact, that it's gotten back to the king of that region, and now Herod is involved. So this is not the Herod of Jesus' birth. That was a guy named Herod the Great. This is his son, Herod Antipas. Not any better than his dad was, it turns out. Herod the Great was the guy who received the Magi and then called for all the boys around Bethlehem, two years old and younger, to be killed. Herod the Great had four sons, and when he died, his kingdom got divided four ways. Herod Antipas, the Herod of this story, had the region around Nazareth and the Sea of Galilee. And so when this Herod hears about Jesus, this great teacher and healer, people are talking about who this Jesus might be. And the the best idea that Herod comes up with is that this Jesus is actually John the Baptist raised from the dead. And here's a great little nugget in there, verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded has been raised. We haven't heard this before. We heard in, in Mark 1 that Jesus was arrested, but this is the first we're hearing of the beheading. And then we get this flashback to events that happened a few chapters ago when John got arrested. Because John, you see, John spoke with boldness. John spoke with zeal, and John was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. John was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, and he was proclaiming repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so he was not afraid to call out sin when he saw it, but he also preached forgiveness. You can't have forgiveness if there's no sin. And if you see, when John saw sin, he would call it out. But he did that as a grace, as a favor. You're doing this awful thing. Stop it. Stop it. Turn away. Repent and be forgiven. Now, Harold Antipas, I keep calling him Harold. Herod Antipas, the Herod of this story, he had an older half-brother, a guy named Herod Philip. Herod Philip had a wife named Herodias and a daughter named Salome. Herod Antipas, our Herod of this story, took Herodias as his own wife. And we can tell from the text that this was not just a one-sided deal. Herodias not only went along with this plan, but probably instigated it. And it was probably her idea. So Herod Antipas marries his brother's wife, which means that he gains a stepdaughter named Salome, who was probably in her late teens by this point. And Herodias does not like John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist is saying, you can't keep doing this thing that you did. It's awful. It's wicked. Stop it. Repent and be forgiven. And Herod threw himself a birthday party. Lots of guests, lots of feasting, all of it in honor of himself. His stepdaughter comes in and danced for him. And the assumption has always been, and the belief has always been, that this was not exactly ballet dancing or square dancing. This was probably a a lewd and lascivious dance that got Herod all excited. And Herod, drunk on his own power and popularity and probably a bunch of other stuff, he makes this absolutely wild promise to her. He says, ask me for whatever you want up to half of my kingdom. But I cannot imagine that Herod ever thought that she would ask for the thing that she asked for. She goes to her mom and she basically says, hey, I just won the lottery. Like, what should I ask for? And her mom says, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. This is somebody who was clearly greatly troubled by her sin and angry at being called to repentance. And so she asks for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And Herod does not want to do this. He knows that John is an honorable man. 
which is why he had kept John safe, even after arresting him in order to please his wife. So he arrests her to please his wife, but keeps him safe because he knows he's honorable. Herod likes John, but Herod's got to save face. Remember, the party that he's at is for him, and so self-image is clearly important to this guy. This lavish event that he threw was a feast of self-indulgence, of giving in to his natural appetites and desires, and that feast of self-indulgence ends with the rejection of God's message and his messenger. But then we get a picture of what the real feast is from Mark chapter 6, verses 30 and onward. Jesus has sent out his apostles, right? He gave them instructions and he sent them out. And they return to him. And he says, come away for a while. Let's go on a retreat to a remote area because you guys need rest. Because, you see, Jesus sends people out on mission and Jesus gathers his people to him and offers them rest. But in this moment, they can't even get real rest because the crowds have figured out where they are and they go there ahead of them to meet them there. Thousands, probably 10,000 people. It says that it was 5,000 men because at the time only men were counted in a crowd. But if you assume that it was men and women and children, it could have been like a football stadium full of people that was meeting Jesus and his disciples when when they get there. And how how does Jesus, the God-man, react when he sees these people at this place where he was supposed to go and get rest and retreat for his 12 guys. How does Jesus react? He reacts the same way that we see God react over and over in, his, in the Bible to his people. In verse 34, he went to shore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. The word compassion, it, it, it means from the gut. He, he, had, he felt deeply for them. It gnawed at him. He loved them with his whole being. And his people, his sheep, had no leader. The religious leaders of the day couldn't see what was in front of them. We've seen it over and over in Mark, the scribes and the Pharisees looking at Jesus and not understanding. The, the civil leaders of the day weren't interested in following God. We see that in the, the actions of Herod immediately before this. And the book of Jude said that all those types of leaders are like waterless clouds, like hidden reefs, like shepherds feeding themselves. That reminds me of Herod. But Jesus looks at his people. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd, and he has compassion on them. And so, like God himself said in Ezekiel 34, his people are sheep without a shepherd, and so God himself will be their shepherd. And so he takes these people and he teaches them and he instructs them, he disciples them. But his disciples, his guys, his 12 guys, they seem to be doubting. They don't realize how much Jesus has equipped them. There's a tricky few verses in the middle of this because it actually makes Jesus sound cold. They come to him and they said, Rabbi, it's it's getting late and we are a long way from any food. Can you send these people away so that they get something to eat? And Jesus said, you give them something to eat. And and they're like, okay, but do you have any idea how much it would cost to feed all these people? And Jesus performs the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. He says, how much is on hand? How much do you have right now? And they say, five loaves and two fishes. Seven items of food. 
Remember, seven is the biblical number of completion, and I don't think it's an accident that that's the amount of food that they had. And so he had them sit down by hundreds and by fifties. This, if, if you know the Old Testament, this is exactly the same way that Moses had the people sit amongst themselves in Exodus 18 when he was bringing structure to the kingdom of, of, to the people of God. This is just one of the ways that Mark shows that Jesus is himself the true Exodus. Jesus is structuring this impromptu feast as a picture of God's people being built into a new nation. And so he has them sit down in this very specific way. And so with seven items of food, the number of plenty, of perfection, of completion, he feeds 5,000 men, probably up to 10,000 people. And there was such an abundance of provision that God brings to his people that there were even 12 whole baskets of food left over after everyone had eaten their fill. 12. 12, the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus, again, we see structuring his kingdom and showing these people in little ways over and over and over that he is the same God that gave Israel, the chosen people, its structure. He's not using words, but he's, he's showing them that he's proclaiming his messiahship and his divinity. But still, still his disciples don't get it. And I find that so helpful that that's included. They have seen Jesus heal. They have heard him teach with authority. They have watched him cast out demons. They themselves have been given power and authority by him to do the exact same thing. And they have seen him speak to the wind and the waves and calm a storm. And they ask themselves over and over the central question of Mark, who is this Jesus? And then, when they see him take a handful of food and feed thousands and thousands of people, when they see him literally walk on the water out to their boat, they still don't understand. They didn't understand the loaves. It says they didn't understand the loaves and their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. Of anybody that was with Jesus... The disciples should have gotten it by now. But they didn't understand and their hearts were hardened. The same way that Jesus' kinfolk and townspeople and neighbors didn't understand and their hearts were hardened. The same way that Herod, hearing the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, the same way that he didn't understand and his heart was hardened. The same way that we can find our hearts hardened when we focus on ourselves and turn away from this great provider, the one who offers us a feast out of his gut-level compassion for us, out of his selfless love for us, the same one who offers us retreat and rest. And yet, even with that, our hearts can be hardened too. And so I think the central question of Mark 6 and, and, and the question that I would ask you today is which feast do you want to attend? Way too often in my own life, I try to construct a Herod feast for myself where, where I'm the center of attention and everything revolves around me. And the, honestly, if you read this passage, the feast that Jesus offers sounds a lot less glamorous, right? Eating and drinking and laughing and dancing in the palace can sometimes sound a lot better than eating little bits of cold fish on a mountainside in a desolate place. But I would much rather I would much rather be one of those nameless, faceless 5,000 men being fed by the shepherd and being given more than I could ever ask for. We don't know their names. 
there was just kind of estimated crowd size, 5,000. We don't know their names. We don't know anything about them. Their accomplishments aren't recorded in any book. But Jesus knew them because God knows them. And God provides for them as their shepherd. Because Jesus is both the shepherd and the lamb that was slain. When John the Baptist was preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins, he didn't know it at the time. But the only thing that gets us that forgiveness of sins is the lamb that was slain, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I think that this idea of Jesus being both provider and sacrifice, this idea of joining him at this nameless, faceless feast, where we aren't the center of attention, where it's not about me, it's about Jesus. I think that's summed up really well in Revelation 7, and I'll close with that. Revelation 7, verses 15 through 17. It's talking about the, the mass of, of followers of God, the martyrs in the, in the white robes, um, all these people who have gathered around the throne of God. It says, therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him in his temple day and night. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. He will, he'll, he'll shepherd them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the feast that we get to attend with Jesus. The feast of, of self-focused, self-love, self-indulgence, of eating and drinking and dancing and wild-making merriment, that kind of feast has real appeal from an earthly perspective. Sometimes for me, it doesn't seem to be desirable at all to be sitting in a desolate place on a mountainside eating a bunch of stale bread and little pieces of fish. I'd rather be known. I'd rather have people gather around me to celebrate me. But, but friends, the real feast is Christ. He is the one who provides. He is the one who provides. He takes, he takes things that, that we would disdain or think couldn't possibly be enough. How can five loaves and two fish possibly feed these thousands of people? He takes little things that we think couldn't possibly be enough, and he transforms them into an abundance of gifts more than we could ever imagine. I pray that God blesses you on this Sunday, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Amen.